Welcome to Significant Bits. I'm your host, Josh Bleeker-Snyder, and this is my guest. Hi, everyone. I'm Shai Nechmad. Nice meeting you. I first met Shai through the Cup of Go podcast, which I will provide a link to in the show notes. And Shai graciously agreed to come on. <laughs> first of all, thanks a lot for having me. Today, I really want to talk about a deeply technical subject that some people mistake for being not technical. And that is writing shit down. We are going to talk about that after Shai's embarrassing bug. I really hoped I could dodge that. <laughs> no luck there. What's the worst thing you ever broke in production or, or something deeply embarrassing that you've done? I can't provide all the details because some of them are classified. Because this is from way back, it's 12 years ago now, uh, when I was a programmer in the army. It was just super... Uh, humbling and embarrassing. I didn't really, really know what compression and encryption were. I just knew that encryption hides stuff somehow, and compression makes stuff smaller somehow. And both of these things were required for the data I was transferring from one place to another. And I did it at the wrong order. And that was very embarrassing, because apparently for everyone it was obvious that, you know, the order of operations does matter because encrypting and then compressing does not a good compression rate make. And it was a lot of data and it was a high cost of transfer. And it was pretty early on in my career as a software developer. And, and for me, it just really clarified the need to actually understand what you're doing and not just try stuff, especially not in production. Like it's, it's okay to try stuff if you can play around, but not in production. This is the knock where everyone always claims that software engineers aren't real engineers because we don't build bridges that have to stand up. You, you built a bridge that didn't stand. So, but wait, you were working for the army. So in theory, if you have to move a lot of data, you could call on an armored truck and move disk drives around. I'll just say we did have uh, one guy that bemoaned the data transfer rate between like uh, bases. So he just ran back and forth 10 times. He was like a marathon runner to prove that if he had a backpack full of disk on keys, disks on key, what's the plural? Diskii on key? <laughs> <laughs> he could uh, outrun the connection. But I don't have a license for a truck. For bandwidth, I presume, not for latency. If he could outrun the latency, <laughs> then you really have a problem. Well, I don't know. If he ran uh, through a downtime, it might have been. But yeah, he was totally about the, about the bandwidth. So yeah, that's my embarrassing bug. It was mostly embarrassing because two minutes after we were done with the deployment, everybody figured out what was wrong. But it was also sort of teaching and humbling for me because that code passed all the tests. It compiled successfully. It went through a rigorous code review and had that bug still just because it's confusing. <laughs> Those are the most, the most insidious of them. Maybe I'll tell a, a quick bug story that you've reminded me of. Very early in my career, I was working for a mobile ads company. It was embarrassing, but it was my first job. Uh, and this was back in the day before ads had gotten incredibly sophisticated surveillanceware, and we were mostly just serving ads. And we had to keep track of all of the impressions that occurred, and we needed to insert or update rows in a database to do this. And the query involved YMD, HH, you know, and I was working in PHP at the time, but I had just been doing stuff in Ruby. They use different date formatters, slightly different. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, I banged out a really quick patch in PHP, passed all the tests, passed code review, went to production, 
And instead of updating the correct rows, it updated random rows. And so I smeared bad data over the entire database. I corrupted the entire database and then spent the next month painstakingly building a system to replay logs, find the correct data, munge the correct data while we rebuilt everything. And it was a one-line change that was obviously correct to everybody who looked at it. Ouch. Well, maybe you could have hashed the date. Although I don't know if I would uh, trust you with that task after the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, hashed the date, then encrypted it, then compressed it. Yeah, <laughs> encrypt first, because, <laughs> yeah. It could be worse. Some order of operations, you can actually break your encryption. Mm -hmm. All right, I think that's our cue to switch topics. I wanted to talk about writing shit down, because I've always felt it was underappreciated, and for me, it was the difference maker from just being like a mediocre job developer to what I hope I am, which is a career software engineer. And because more recently in the last, I would say, 68 months, some people have a lot of misconceptions about the value of writing stuff down versus the value of having the thing written down even though you didn't write it. A lot of like LLMs and auto summary meeting notes and automatic design document generators and all that. I use LLMs every day. I love these tools, but I feel like it really skews the view on the value of planning versus the value of having the plan written down or the value of thinking versus having the result written out for you. Let's start really basic. You are a software developer and you get requirements. That's usually the, the, the normal flow. Either you go talk to someone and you figure out what they want, or you have a product manager figure it out for you with a lot of signal noise ratio. What's the first thing you do? I don't know. I guess I would think about what the underlying goal is, the commander's intent, and think about what the current system does. No, you open a notebook. You open a new page in a notebook. You open a Confluence document, if that's what you're, or a Notion, or LogSec, or whatever. We might talk about tools later, but the tool is not the focus. Paper page counts. A whiteboard counts if you remember to take a picture before you leave for the day, because boards are RAM, and they reset to zero every night. That's the first thing I do, and I think that's the first thing you do, because the first thing you said is think. And the best companion for thinking is writing things down. That's the way. And I want to try and convince you why that is the way. Great, because I would say that the best companion for thinking is one of three things. One, legs, taking a walk. Two, your pillow. Or three, a colleague, talking. The notebook or you know the empty page can provide a lot of things. When you're talking about a feature, it can provide a very compliant but very challenging colleague in the same way that you would think about a tennis coach versus a tennis opponent. A colleague will sometimes act as an opponent. They want to bounce things off. They want to win. They have their own time. They don't want to spend all day with you. Uh, speak for yourself. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully you work with busy people. You know what I mean? But they always have time for a little <laughs> bit of discussion and a little bit of ping pong. But requirements specifically, 
which is the first sort of writing I want to talk about. You want to understand the requirements, you know, or write them in a language that both yourself, the customer or the person representing the customer understand in a way that lowers the bus factor. And again, the value here is writing it down, not the uh, resulting document. The thinking that went through it when you write out the user wants to log into the platform and then immediately it clicks that they have to log out as well or that the same email could be used for multiple accounts. These are not dots that you're going to connect in your brain if you don't write them out. I think you may think of them, but because you don't write it down, then you don't say it out loud to yourself you miss that opportunity. And, and for me, that missed opportunity is the worst because thinking is the hardest part and the funnest part of our job. But so many people don't have a system to do it in. So requirements. Now, let's say you want to write a requirements document down. You got a requirement from the product and they even have like, I don't know, the UI laid out or a few use cases laid out. They really did their job. What are the questions you're going to want to ask yourself? What are you going to think I mean, about? Usually the first question is, what do you really want? What are you really trying to solve? Is the approach that is the obvious one the best approach? How is it going to play out in the future of the product? How is it going to play with our existing technology? Are there shortcuts we can take to implement it in a way that is either faster or less disruptive to the code base? What does it mean for the mental model, both of the people building it and the user? Basically thinking about the entire thing from a systems perspective and making sure that the stuff you build is the right thing because it's very easy to have fun writing code and it's very fun to delete that code later. It's not fun to think about how you spent a week tinkering around with something that a few minutes of thought could have spared you. Maybe some of the most embarrassing bugs people could talk about are, I spent X, Y days, weeks, months, years developing that thing that actually already existed. So you brought up a few interesting questions. And the way I like to think about it is when I want to face this stage of writing requirements and figuring them out and challenging them, right? The first thing you said, I want to challenge it. What do you really want? Because you already probably have some preconceived notion when you say, uh, you know, we should integrate with Okta for login. That's the requirement. And I'm like, what do you really want? And it's like, I want enterprise customers. And I'm like, okay, so you actually want SAML authentication, not specifically Okta. It's just that this client uses Okta, but that's not what you want, et cetera, et cetera. So luckily... You mentioned a few questions there. You mentioned how does that impact the code base? Which approach should we take? Is it Occam's razor always, or is there something we need to think about here? Pay upfront in the short term, but it will come in the long term, et cetera, et cetera. I would ask different questions. Requirement usually represents there's some state in the world, some thing happens to that state, you know, let's talk functional programming, there's no time, there's just a state and then uh, some values change and then it's a new state and time is a byproduct of that difference and it's only in the eye of the observer, blah, 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 Rich Hickey and all his philosophical nonsense that I can't get into closure because of uh, because I'm not a philosopher. So, <laughs> um, you know, I would ask, for example, what are the inputs? What's their range, their accuracy, their frequency? What's the format? Where are they coming from? And what's the outputs? The range, the accuracy, the frequency, and what formats are they expected in? I would ask about load parameters. I would like try to analyze it more as a pipeline or as a process or as something like that, just because that's where I come from. And then you might come to the first sort of big hurdle when I tell people, yo, write shit down all the time, which is, wait, but 
what do I write down? Because I can't write down every single thought in my head because I can't type fast enough. When it comes to uh, requirements, I always have my cheat sheet, Code Complete. Have you read it? No. So I highly recommend Code Complete Volume 2 uh, if you need to level a table or whack someone on the head for taking your bus seat because it's like 37 chapters of super high detailed thoughts about software development. And if you actually want to read a part, I recommend you read the checklist at the end of uh, a few chapters that just you can copy them into your paper and then answer the questions one by one. And that gives you that tennis coach, which always delivers, always challenges you on your level, asks you the right questions. And after a while, you develop a rapport with them. And you know, okay, these questions I already know the answers to. No problem. I can knock them out of the park. So know what you want to write. And coming back to requirements, why you want to write them down. So the reason you want to do this plan is because you want to think. You want to reason about this feature because you don't want to have waste, right? You don't want to do work that's not needed. You want to deliver something that's high quality. You want to have a methodology because you want to enjoy this process. You don't want it to be random every time. You don't want it to be anxiety-inducing. You want to grow every time you do it. If you write stuff down and you put to-do, I need to learn more about authentication because someone asked for Okta and I don't really know what it means. You create this system, right? This feedback loop where you can look back at what you thought a day ago, a week ago would be good for you and act upon that information. And if you don't really know what to do or every time you do it, it's random, Take it out of code complete. You don't need to think about it too much. I think it's chapter five that's called preliminary design review. There's a checklist at the end and just grab that checklist. It's like 20 to 30 bullet points and it's gonna make you look like a genius in the next design review meeting because you're gonna have all these great questions about the, the preliminary design and the requirements. Are the requirements in the user's language? Did we forget any case? And they also ended with a bunch of human questions. Did you write these requirements just to satisfy your boss? Are you confident that you can implement these requirements? Et cetera, et cetera. One question is, to what extent do I invest in this? For very simple things, little bug fix, pixels here, words there, don't want to do this. For really complicated, large tasks, particularly ones that are ill-defined, it seems really clear that you want to go through a process to help you write things down and gain clarity and make sure that you can have a thought put a pin in it and return to it and give it the attention you need. The thing that I'm still unsure about is the extent to which for all the squishy middle things, how much do you invest in writing versus move forward? And I will say an experience I've had a lot, and I'm curious to hear you reflect on this as we keep going. When I'm working solo on a project, either it's a side project or it's a company that I'm starting and I don't have any colleagues yet, I will find that I gravitate towards writing, for lack of a better word, a development journal. Every day, I'll write down what I'm thinking about, the decisions I've made, the ideas I have that I don't have time to pursue. And I find that that keeps me on track in a way that I absolutely would flounder without. But as I start to have a bunch of structure and people around me, that becomes less important and I become more of a neuron in a bigger brain. The brain does some of the writing for me. We didn't do like the usual cred of, oh, I worked here and that's why you should listen to me, blah, blah, blah. But my previous job was a VPRND as... VPRND, I had the great opportunity to manage a bunch of high output people and try to figure out what helps them tick. Uh, and all of us, English was our second language. Some of our, most of the team was in Israel, some in India, some in uh, Eastern Europe. 
Nobody spoke English as a first language. And I'm pretty sure other than our American uh, sales reps, uh, I had the best English in the entire team. Uh, and as you can hear, it's not great. Uh, it would pass as a salesperson in a cart in a, in a mall somewhere, but definitely not as a professional uh, business English. But we did do all of our like design documents and obviously code in English. So it made sense to do the writing in English as well. And for people that don't find technical uh, writing easy, which I would classify as most software developers, communication is a big problem anyway, and writing is even harder for most of us. My big question with anybody who I don't know well is, can they communicate? Do they have good judgment? It's all of these soft skills that you get from liberal arts degrees that are the thing that I really prize in software engineers. Brad Fitzpatrick has this shirt that he would wear that has a Venn diagram, which is talk, think, do. And he would say he'd be really excited if people could cover two of the three, and three of the three was extraordinarily rare. I think it's possible that you would like to replace that with right, think, do. But either way you cut it, the ability to think critically and communicate clearly is a really important skill and definitely one that I like look for when communicating with somebody who I might hire. So, so I'm going to go down this tangent with you and say, you know how people do uh, coding katas or coding competitions or read blogs or listen to podcasts? Fools all. Yeah. <laughs> who would you classify as more everything else being equal as someone who's probably better at technical topic X, someone who read five articles about topic X or someone who wrote five articles about topic X? Assuming the articles aren't AI-generated mush, right? Which is harder and harder to find uh, these days. Typically wrote, although I would prefer somebody who spent time doing topic X. And it's like the danger when you go to ask for gear recommendations about, so I don't know, podcasting, is you get a bunch of recommendations from people who love to spend all their time talking and thinking about audio gear and nothing from the people who spend their time recording and editing because they're busy recording and editing. So that's why I'm saying all things being equal. Again, going down this tangent of trying to pe find people who think and do and talk. If you write things down and you're bad at it, but you do it daily as a process, after a month, you're going to be a better communicator. Because when that Slack message comes from a sales rep asking for, hey, do you know what's up with that bug? Translating our thoughts into that email, into that Slack message is going to be less cumbersome. And the way you phrase it is going to be better because you already practiced it for a month. And the actual content, which is also important, would also be better. A lot of our communication is async, written, documents, and as I, I hope to get to in a second, code. Comments and also commit messages, notably. Commit messages you can learn basically everything you need to know about how Go is implemented just reading the commit changes because they frequently contain a summary of the state of the art, why it's designed the way it is, how this change impacts things, and they're a remarkable learning source for people who want to read good technical writing. I really wish I had that at my current company, and I'm really happy I had it at my previous one. So pop AX, AX, ret, pop AX, AX, ret. I'm going back to the previous two stacks high up the tangent tree, and we're going back to scope. You ask what's the scope of writing should be. Practicing writing will make you a better writer, so there's an, a side effect benefit to doing the writing that's unrelated to the scope. But I would say 20 for really small tasks 
to 80 for really big tasks, that's the scope of writing versus doing. And it can't be less than 20. If the bug is going to take you a minute to fix and open the pull request and push it, 20 seconds or like 15 seconds of that time should be spent on the commit message. And I know this is a real, like a really micro example and you might not think about it, but if you have the habit of doing minus M and writing a short commit message in the terminal versus not doing minus M and writing that in Vim or whatever your editor is, I think the difference is palpable. The tools we have, the tools we use, drastically influence our behavior. When you make things easy, people do more of it. For those who are really into Git and Linus, a comment that Linus made that influenced the design of Git is quantitative changes become qualitative changes. If you make it faster enough, all of a sudden it's easier enough that you use the tool in different ways. And the interesting what we need here is the opposite. We need a tool that puts you in the mindset of slowing down, of thinking, and of writing. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast kind of thing, you know, if you're, if you're into CrossFit and stuff like that. It's not like doing it faster is going to have the whole movement become faster. It's just doing that thing right now faster. But definitely, it is in introducing by design more friction into your life. So you're you're not asking for a lighter load, but you're getting a stronger back. So, As a middle-aged person who continually injures himself every time he exercises, I am coming to appreciate the importance of slow. You know what? Then I am going to take a break, and you'll probably edit this part out. But if not, then the listeners are going to enjoy me lifting up my table. I don't want to shout out my current place too much. I work at Orca Security right now, and I'm pretty new there, and I'm having a great time so far. The thing I discovered last week is that we have a treadmill that has... Uh, thing like some plank that you can put your laptop on and i knocked out like two kilometers during meetings that day that was really good wait you don't take walking meetings it was like over zoom so also obviously i was writing down the meeting notes in the army i didn't have a laptop i couldn't because of infosec reasons and they told me you need to take a notebook everywhere that was like a thing that you can write your thoughts down i see you <laughs> bringing up your uh, tiny notepad uh, out of your pocket right there it lives in my pocket all the time. I learned at some point that if I just systematically turned off my video during every Zoom meeting, people would eventually get used to the fact that I was that weird guy that didn't do video, and then I could do it all the time, and now I can take walks during meetings, and I can write things down as I walk. Very nice. Uh, but it started in the Army. I think for most people it ended as the task list and calendar management system, which is, to be honest, good enough to get you, like, 80% of the way to being above average at everything. Most people aren't that intentful about their time, energy, and learning processes at work. It started by write your tasks down, write your calendar for the day, make sure you're ready for all the meetings. If the meeting is with a lieutenant colonel or above, mark it with an asterisk and make sure you come five minutes early and tuck in your shirt. But that sort of really grew on me because I would summarize all the meetings. And it gave me two superpowers. The first one is if you write the minutes down in a meeting, and this is sort of a org political thing. If you're working solo or, or you know, in a place with a ton of transparency, it doesn't matter a lot. But the person who controls the spice, controls the empire, is very akin to the person who writes the meeting notes, decides what the decisions were. If you write the meeting notes and you write them truthfully, I'm not saying like lie or whatever, 
in three months' time when people open up that meeting and they're trying to understand what happened, you're going to have a lot of influence on that. And that really does matter, especially if you're good. I don't necessarily love doing it, but I definitely would prefer writing the meeting notes down than having an AI summarize them for me. Just as a recent anecdote, I had a sales talk with some vendor, whatever. It was horrible. I didn't want to get what they were trying to sell me. I was very clear about that in the sales call and it ended 15 minutes early. When I got the AI summary from like Gong or whatever it was, it was like, oh my God, look at this amazing product. It's so good. And someone reading those notes or myself in three months time, I could be like, wait, why did I turn that vendor down? Their offering seems so good and their pricing so competitive. Because I wrote in my diary, oh, they opened the demo and the shit didn't work. And, you know, it was embarrassing. So I said we were less interested, but in reality, it doesn't work. That matters. Fundamentally, how you view the world will influence how you write the meeting notes. Victor writes the history, but there's no war. Whoever wrote the contemporaneous notes writes the history. Yeah, totally. So we talked about requirements. We talked about meanings. Uh, I'm going to briefly mention design. So writing design documents is a no-brainer. Most developers, even developers who are not like writers or wouldn't think of themselves as technical writers, have probably knocked out a UML or two in their life to try and explain a process or a structure to a colleague to either verify that the process is correct, that the architecture is sound, that the tools are relevant, et cetera, et cetera, or just because they saw the senior architect doing some dots and lines and boxes, and they said, oh, I want that guy's salary, so I'm gonna do that myself. But design documents tend to differ a lot between like verticals and technologies, depending on a thing you're working on. And general advice about design documents isn't usually applicable. That sounds right to me. Common advice when you're writing is to write for one person, to write for a particular audience, and that helps you shape your thoughts. Sometimes the audience is you in the future. I know that with my development journals, I do that. Sometimes the audience is the sales or product managers. And with design documents, I think the audience is the people who are going to be doing the design review and thinking about what they need to know in order to do a good job reading a design document, which by the way, I think is one of the harder tasks I have a really hard time reading a design document without either falling asleep or implicitly absorbing all of the assumptions that went into it and not discovering that they need to be questioned. Um, mm -hmm. It's really, really difficult. So I think design documents come in two, two types. They come in working document types where it's a draft that you start writing and people comment that then you edit it and then people comment again and then you edit it again, then people are like, why was this changed? And you bemoan that you didn't write it in Git as a markdown file and you start hating all web interfaces. And the second is more of a form of proposal where you, you could consider like GitHub discussions or issues where you hand in a document and there's a discussion, but you don't edit the original document usually unless they're like fixed typos or whatever. In both cases, I agree it makes sense to write for an audience. I usually try to aim for the next person in the delivery train. Right, the people are going to do the work. The most clear way to write these documents is to write them for the people who are going to do the work because then you actually have to explain all the assumptions because otherwise they might assume other things. And you also have to grapple with the things that make the design hard, which is the reality of implementation. Yeah, you, you can't escape like, yeah, just do it also fast and don't take any memory and always accurate and always consistent. Like you're going to have to like 
pick one and hope that they can implement it because we're working in Python and nothing works. But in lieu of giving very specific advice for if you're working in web development, remember these like edge cases. And if you're working with data, always remember, you know, designing data intensive applications and look at partitioning and, and uh, you know, replication or whatever. I found that there is some general advice that can be applied to almost any design document. There are two pieces of advice, basically. The first one is when you're thinking about time, always think about space. And when you're thinking about space, always think about time. So the mistake most people fall into is either doing time, like showing a process happening, right? A great example of such a chart that explains beautifully something going through time is that product manager chart from Slack where they show the decision flow for whether to show you a notification or not. What it doesn't explain is space. What objects, what servers, what components. The other option is you'd see a really, really great architecture chart. AWS does these really well, where you have this sort of infrastructure grid and there's arrows between every single piece of whatever AWS service they released last week. And it explains how every component talks to every other component. The hardest part is understanding that there is no possible way to write a chart that explains a process happening through time and also explain the components, at least in 2D, and that you have to write both of them down. Usually, people like to think about space and then time. Define your like actors or components or servers or pieces of infrastructure and where are they laid out in space. These are those databases. They are in this data center, in this availability zone. They talk with this RPC and HTTP via this ALB, blah, 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 to that server, blah, 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 blah. And then have just a new line and do the time where you don't have to define the relationships between components in space because everybody knows that already. And you could just tell what the process is. This thing starts. It, this is the where the first message is brought into the queue. Or this is where the interrupt is inserted into the kernel and we need to start taking stuff away from the registers. Whatever it is. That's the best tip I, I ever got for writing design documents. And again, it's not about the result. People are going to look at the charts and going to give you a pay raise at the end of the year because people who write charts are smart. But <laughs> more concretely, it forces you to think about why do I want to have these objects laid out in space like that? Because in time, they're not going to talk to each other. Then why do they have to be in the same availability zone? Or conversely, this thing is always initialized before that. So maybe B should include A. I guess that's the only broad advice I can give for writing design documents. The second one is to write them quickly try and knock it out as fast as you can and send it to someone in the same sense that you would try to compile your code as fast as possible. I've seen developers get bogged down in planning documents for two weeks. If you can spend a week writing out a plan or two days writing out the code, you should spend two hours writing out the plan because that's about 20%, right? And then the rest of these days writing out the code. So there's a different 80-20 rule there, which is you're going to get 80% of the value from the first 20% of the time you spend writing. 100%. And you can think about it iteratively as well, right? You write them for an hour, and then you open the ID and you open the new projects just to have a good feeling about something happening, right? Uh, and you set up like a linter for 20 minutes. And then you're like, okay, now I need to really think about space and time. You dig down, banging out these two charts. 
don't write all the, you probably have some design format, design checklist, but don't do that. Send it to someone on Slack. If it's short, you're gonna get a short answer, short feedback loop, someone else to bounce it off. I think the page, while being a great tennis coach, can also be very lonely. You wanna share it. When talking about sharing, you, you said you had a devlog. Did you share that with people after they onboarded to that new endeavor you were working about, or was that a totally private thing? It was a totally private thing, and having it be totally private made it easier to write down all the dumb ideas. It made it easier to write full stop. So I agree. It was a lot easier for me to write in my notebook where I could be like, I'm frustrated, sad face, and just write that sentence down and process it emotionally and then continue with my day. And, and this is not something I would write in meeting notes. But the last sort of diatribe I'm going to go on here is publish it. This is something I've started doing because of my CTO at the last company, Gal. Shout out, Nakash. He suggested we start writing our like daily dev diaries and just publish them. We picked Confluence blogs, which are horrible. They crash if you load a GIF file into them and leave it open overnight. And the editing experience is horrible. They say you've draft just wrong, especially if you use right to left and left to right. They're just the worst medium ever. And still, the value we got from writing things down and then publishing them on a daily basis brought us as a group, as an R&D group specifically, to the 95th percentile of R&D groups. You found some nice shell trick, you write it down. Someone looks up an error that happens when they try to install the incorrect version of NumPy on their Python installation because they didn't install the C libraries first. They look it up and they just find it. You try to remember what you were working on before the weekend, boom, 10 minutes in, you're already in full zone. You have all the context about the tasks you worked. It could have been three weeks ago before your vacation. You mentioned being uh, solo and then becoming part of a brain. If you have a brain, you're going to want it to have long-term memory. And we did that from the start. And for that reason, it wasn't the shame factor was really low. Everybody did it. And then we were a really small group. So it, it, was, it was no problem. When I left my previous company and joined Orca, I decided to just do that. Nobody was doing that at a company. It was, I think, a 500-person company. And I just started doing it. And the value and the response I've gotten from every morning getting down, opening my terminal, writing my morning alias, which like does the SSO login and deploy to my Kubernetes environment, and also open up a new blog every day has been incredible. I don't have to worry about where, about the taxonomy, right? When you write requirements, you have to put it in the right place. You have to remember to send it somewhere. But if you just always have, you know, that pocketbook in your pocket, you don't worry about where I'm going to write things down. This is today's page. So things that happen today, I'm going to write down there. And our life happens in days. So you don't waste mental capacity on the taxonomy. There are some limitations. You won't put one-on-one -on -one notes there because you care about the privacy of your colleagues or your uh, reports uh, or your boss, right? So... Uh, you know, unless you're exposing some secret project, writing down some IP or writing personal information about someone, you can publish even the junk info. For me, that has been transformational for my career. Writing design documents and writing requirements 
writing good messages and doing writing daily and doing the tasks and doing whatever, that's enough to get you to the 95th percentile. But publishing it doesn't get you to the 100th percentile, but it brings everyone else up, which is what being senior staff or you know manager or director is all about. So I love it. After you wrote it down, publish it. That's the last thing I would teach. There is a gem. I should leave it there because it's a lovely ending note. But there is a real gem there that I want to pull out and polish for a moment, which is the idea of having one place where you can dump all the things without having to think about categorization. I discovered this by accident with my devlog where I originally tried to organize things. And finally, I was like, ah, new file every day and you're done. And Rome Research and then Obsidian added some cross-linking to this. And it's lovely. But the core idea really is remove all of the barriers to writing. Every little barrier makes it easy for humans to not do a thing that they know they ought to do but shouldn't. And also, conversely, if there's a thing that you don't want to do much, adding tiny barriers will help. There's a study about people who had candy in their drawer of their desk versus on their desk. Candy on your desk gets eaten at a dramatically higher rate than candy in a drawer. It's so easy to open a drawer, but having to open the drawer slows you down. I totally agree. For personal use, I use LockSec, which is sort of like Obsidian. It's sort of more hardcore noting because you have a lot of features and to-dos and cross-links and you have to read about Zettelkasten and all the people who use it are weird. But if you do the daily writing ritual and you find it useful, or specifically if you're like a student or research or really learning a lot, I find LogSec pretty nice. It's also very privacy aware, which I at least appreciate. But again, the tools are super not the point. As a software engineer, you probably have a place where you document knowledge. And this is where you want it to go because you want it to be searchable, whether it be the entire World Wide Web or just your run-of-the-mill Notion uh, workspace. People will opt for search first. So that's why you know worrying about putting in that page or this page really doesn't matter. One more question, and then we should wrap up. You got everyone else writing blogs for internal consumption. Do you actually read many of your colleagues? I know it's not the point, but I'm curious. First of all, I got everybody to try it. It didn't stick for everyone, obviously. There's a hard habit to pick up. But I read it as part of the morning routine, I would say, 80% of the time. The interesting part would be if you use an app that allows you to comment on top of someone else's content, we, again, used Confluence, so you can like mark some text and, and do a comment. Obviously, you can't do it just on headings or code samples because they suck. But if you mark just uh, whatever the product manager down in Australia decided it's okay for me to mark and put a comment on, it would sometimes spark discussions that were really better than the coffee machine talks. Because they have rich context and there's thought that's gone into it. I was actually really surprised when you talked about writing in meetings that you were talking about the meeting notes as opposed to a pre-meeting document thinking through, written down, all of the things to discuss in the meeting. There are meetings <laughs> like that. They, do, they did happen. They do exist. They are not the norm, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, I would read a lot of it. People sort of wrongly assume that it was like an evidence log against them. Like if they skipped a diary one day, I would be like, you know, I was the VP R&D and I'm kind of a strict manager. So they assumed I would be like, oh, you skipped your diary today. That's uh, minus five employee points. <laughs> but very quickly, it was clear to people that wasn't the case. All I wanted them was to have a lot of intent in their personal growth 
because I wanted them to think because that was what I was paying them for. And I want them to be able to do, which is writing code and writing commit messages as well. So I would read most of it. The point was the exercise did what I wanted it to do, which is improve communication skills, make people more intentful and just make them better developers day in, day out. A nice side benefit was that myself and two other developers did tend to write a lot of what we were doing. That sort of created a nice view for me about this is what this person is, is wasting time on. Maybe I can help them and teach them something. And for myself, self-proclaimed, and also for them, you know, in our one-on-ones and afterwards, it did significantly improve them professionally. Significantly. I don't know. It may be anecdotal, but it works. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Shai. Before we go, anything you want to shamelessly self-promote or promote? Uh, not shamelessly at all. I'm very proud of what I do. So first of all, if you like podcasts, Jonathan Hall and I have a podcast about Go. It's a lot less talky and cerebral than this one. It's more news and interviews. But if you write Go code, uh, maybe you should uh, listen. Also, I have my own blog, which is another form of writing, which we haven't uh, discussed even. It's mrnice.dev, uh, mrnice.dev, just not uh, spelled out. Because Nechmad in Hebrew means nice, literally. That's what it translates to. So if you want to check out what I write now and then and deem good enough to publish as a blog, which for me is like, ooh, this is the like public, I'm worried about I can't just write <laughs> bullshit thing I edit uh, seven times, you can uh, go there. And I think that's it. The, all my contact information is there. And right that now is. I'm doing uh, engineering enablement at Orca Security. And I can't say enough thing, uh, nice things about the company. So shout out to Orca. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Shai. This is great. Bye, Josh. Thanks for having me.